needs and some situations going on. And uh, Kathy has been sending me information about this and everything. And I'd like to invite her to come up and just share a little quick, brief uh, word about what we're praying about and then pray for Joel and Stephanie, would you? Come on, Kathy. You're going to have to speak up because I don't know uh, if you're not microphone. Is this long, loud enough? It's loud enough for me. <laughs> Go ahead. from them regarding the problems there. One of the last ones that I got were regarding a 10-year-old child that is going through a liver transplant. Then I found out his seven-year-old brother has health conditions as well. I don't know if there's a dad in the picture. It's very unclear. But these people, the missionaries who are praying and taking care of these, you know, youngsters with their mom and holding them to their heart, they need our prayers. Mm -hmm. So if we can pray as a group, I know that God will hear all of our prayers and also that he will heal these two children. Like I said, one is 10 and one is 7, and they're brothers. So the mom is going through a huge ordeal. Mm -hmm. So anyway, if we can bow our heads, and I will pray, and if you will pray continually for them. Mm -hmm. Heavenly, gracious Father, you are so almighty and majestic and powerful. You are our loving parent and healing father. I come before you to ask you for better to beg you to please heal these two young men. Be with the mother and give her peace to their calmness in this time of distress. Father, I also ask you to be with Stephanie and Joel as they relate the news of the situation to us. And also, Father, I know with your healing, loving hands and your heart that loves so much, you will guide all the people that are praying for him and for the missionaries. You'll guide their hearts and know what to say. Father, I pray for the people in Paris and for all the chaos to stop. I pray all of this in your precious son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Kathy. You're welcome. Appreciate it. Well, how are y'all doing with your uh, Bible reading these days? I know it's kind of getting to be the summer months, and so sometimes things, you know, get a little bit more haphazard during the summer months. Are you sticking at it? What are you reading these days? Galatians. Okay, Galatians, good. All right, the Chronological Bible. Which what book are you on with the Chronological Bible? Yep, so we're kind of getting to the end of Solomon, and we did the Song of Solomon yesterday, the whole, the whole book. That was one, one day's reading. 
and now kind of the sort of things are starting to unravel a little bit at the end of old Solomon's life. He's not making wise decisions, unfortunately. Yes? Uh, well, the one, I'm not sure if I know the name of it. I'll pull it up on my app. I've got it on this thing called the YouVersion app. I think it's called the One Year Chronological Bible. Yeah, I'll look and see what I've got. Yeah, the One Year, copyright, One Year Chronological Bible. Yeah, I guess there's some that are a little bit different. They're not all, yeah, there's not, you know, the chronological Bible, they're trying to do their best to kind of piece it together in a way historically that makes sense. Uh, so they're not all identical. But the one that I use is, it's called uh, The One Year, capital O, capital Y, One Year Chronological Bible. Um, so I'm not sure who publishes or anything, but it's just on version. Yeah, that's true. There are yeah, there are multiple multiple versions of it. Yeah. I'm in one and it's we're in Psalms. Okay. Well, I guess there's little consensus on the uh, precise chronology of the Bible. So hey, listen, as long as you're reading it, I think that that's the most important thing, you know. Well, whatever it is, I think it's helpful to have a plan, some structure, whether it's your own plan that you do yourself or uh, you know, the uh, McShane's you know, Bible reading plan or the one-year chronological or I used to do one called the one-year Bible where it was Old Testament, New Testament, uh, a little bit of Psalms, a couple verses from Proverbs. That's a good one to do. So, yeah, there's no wrong answer in terms of what you're reading in the Bible. I'm just kind of curious to see uh, what you're all, what y'all are reading. Anybody else? Mom and Dad, you mentioned you just finished the plagues in Exodus. Okay. Neat. Yep. Holy Spirit focus today. Well, good. Well, let me encourage you. Hey, be in your Bible reading plan, whatever it is that you're reading. Uh, if you want to read with commentators and commentaries, always great, always helpful. Uh, just kind of get in the Bible, whether it's a bigger chunk or just maybe even a, you know, a paragraph that you want to meditate on during the day. There's no wrong answer. Just be in the Word. Eat the book. Okay? Well, today we're coming to the book of Haggai. And we're calling this one Building God's House. And I want to start with a question for you. How many of you watch HGTV? Uh-oh. <laughs> 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 yes, yes. HGTV, anybody? Well, if you, do watch H- if you do watch it, you are not alone. The network, which launched on December 30th, 1994, is available in 95 million... 628,000 American households, 82.2% of all households with a television in the United States get HGTV. Now, if you don't watch it, it's an entire network dedicated to building, renovating, buying and selling, uh, remodeling, redecorating homes and gardens and all sorts of different things. Whether the messengers are Chip and Joanna Gaines, or the Property Brothers, or Ben and uh, Ben Nap- Aaron and Ben Napier from Meridian, Mississippi. I don't know if you ever watched those guys. 
or the anonymous voiceover lady who wants to help you buy a house in the Swiss Alps on uh, House Hunters International. The message is that your life is incomplete unless your house looks like one of the dream houses that's pictured on the HGTV shows. Now, do you know that they, what they do not renovate on HGTV? They do not renovate church buildings on HGTV. There's no such thing as flip this church or uh, church hunters or tiny church big living. Now there was a show on there called Divine Design, but sadly it had nothing to do with God. Now, the question is, how important is God's house? Is it more important than your house? These are some of the questions that are posed this morning by the prophet Haggai. Somebody read for me Haggai chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. You can read it from the screen or read it from your Bible. question. So the question for us is, how do we rebuild God's house? Is God's house a physical house? Is he talking only about the church building itself? Is God's house a spiritual house? Is he saying kind of you need to get your, your uh, inner life in order and your relationship with God in order? Maybe a little bit of, of both, some or other. Well, let's think about it. We're going to talk first about the author and date of the book of Haggai. The very first verse we read, chapter 1, verse 1, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Very first verse. Haggai's name is derived from a Hebrew word that means feast or festival. That means that Haggai was either born during one of the Jewish feasts or festivals, or that his ministry anticipates the reestablishment of Israelites' feasts and festivals after the end of the Babylonian exile. Okay? Haggai was a contemporary of Zechariah, not Zephaniah. We heard about him the other day. Both men were post-exilic prophets, meaning that they prophesied 66 years after the destruction of Jerusalem among the people who came back to Israel, led by Zerubbabel, and the governor, and Ezra, the priest. So that's, that's the, roughly the time period. They're prophesying roughly during the, the time of the book of Ezra after the exile was over. The only book in the Old Testament that lists more specific dates than Haggai is the book of Ezekiel. Now, keep in mind that Haggai is just two chapters long, while Ezekiel is 48 chapters long, and you will get a sense of just how many specific dates are listed in the book of Haggai. 
Based on the dates listed in the book, we know that Haggai was written sometime between late August and mid-December of 520 BC. So again, a very short window of time, late summer to the end of the year in 520 BC. While the book is clearly attributed to Haggai, it is possible that someone else transcribed Haggai's words after the fact, that he didn't personally write it down himself. That would explain why Haggai is written in the third person instead of the first person. Very common thing back then for, for scribes and secretaries to write down the words of a famous prophet rather than the prophet writing the book themselves. Okay, another unique feature of Haggai is the fact that the Israelites actually listened to him. They normally did not listen to the prophets. They responded to Haggai and Zechariah, his contemporary, by rebuilding the temple. The re rebuilding project was completed in 516 BC, just four years after Haggai delivered this prophecy. So they jumped in really quick, listened, and obeyed him. All right, now what are some other things, just by way of reminder, that are happening right around uh, 516 B.C.? When did Jerusalem fall? Do you remember that? 586 B.C. When did the northern kingdom fall? 722 B.C. So 722, the northern kingdom falls. Many years later, 586, the southern kingdom falls. And then... They return, and Haggai begins prophesying in about 520. Temple is completed, Ezra 615, in uh, 516 B.C. So that's kind of where we are in the story. All right, let's look at some of the literary analysis, maybe an outline of the book here. Haggai contains four distinct oracles. What is an oracle? Somebody tell me what an oracle is. A prophecy, a prophecy against someone, good. That it often is against someone. What what is an oracle? If I stood up in the pulpit and I said, "I have an oracle for you," would you be nervous? And if so, why would you be nervous? <laughs> What's that? I would be nervous. Why would why would I mean you be nervous, Frank? <laughs> okay, it's usually related to something in the future, right? It's sort of like, I'm about to sort of predict the future, predict some future event. Uh, you know, thus says the Lord, you know, I don't know, in five years we'll have a, you know, some war, some bad thing, or maybe a good thing. But it's something about the future. Now, in the first oracle, which is dated, now notice the specificity of these dates. It's really remarkable. The first oracle, which is dated August 29. 520 BC, God famously accuses the people of caring more about their own houses than they care about his house. He says, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have you, your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. Why? Because they've neglected the temple. Because they've cared about their own life and their own houses and their own agenda more than God and his house and his agenda. So there's a, a judgment there. Somebody read 
Haggai 1, verses 7 through 11. From the screen or in your Bible. So Haggai is offering an explanation of why things are going very poorly in the land. Again, they have neglected God's house and have instead been focusing on rebuilding their own houses. Now, surprisingly, the people responded with enthusiastic obedience. And God blessed them with his presence, which is a, a covenantal idea that God is with us and the temple represents God's presence with us. So God says in verse 13, I am with you, declares the Lord. All right, second oracle. In Haggai's second oracle, dated October 17th, 520 BC, again, specificity is remarkable, God addresses his holy construction workers. While most of the construction workers were born in Babylon during the exile, there were some workers who remembered the glory of Solomon's temple. The question is, would the new temple be as good as the old one? Well, the answer is yes and no. Compared to Solomon's temple, the new temple was like a tiny house on wheels. Very small. And yet, God promised to make the temple even more glorious than Solomon's temple. Amazing. Somebody read Haggai 2, verses 6 through 9. Second oracle. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. And the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And this, and in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So it's a remarkable claim that even though uh, the new temple would be physically a little bit smaller, a little bit less uh, ornate than Solomon's temple it would be even more glorious because of God's presence, because of his peace, because of his blessing. Yes? Um, the temple was torn down completely. Yes. Yeah, there was a little bit of rubble on the temple mount, but it was basically totally, totally wiped out. Yes? It did. If I, now, I, I'm a little bit out of my league. I'm kind of going or out of my wheelhouse here. I'm trying to remember. I believe that when they 
built the second one, it was built in the same location, but it, it didn't take up the whole temple mount. It was a little bit physically smaller. There's some notes in, the, I, in my uh, ESV study Bible is the note that I use, and it has pictures of it or like drawings of it, and I believe it's smaller. Can anyone correct me? Does anyone know that answer for sure? I believe that's true, but again, I, that's kind of just on my memory versus uh, going in there. Uh, at the very least, I am 100% sure that it was less ornate than Solomon's temple, where everything was paneled with gold. And, it, and I think it, uh, basically it says when they're building Solomon's temple, silver was as nothing in Israel. It was, it was considered worthless compared to all of the gold that they uh, put on everything in, in the temple. All right, third oracle. In Haggai's third oracle, dated December 18th, 520 B.C., God addresses the priests. He asks them two questions. Does clean food make a person, make a person clean? And his answer is no. The second is, does unclean food make a person unclean? And the answer is yes. Absolutely. Do you follow the logic there? He says, uh, essentially, if you sort of put, put some clean food in your, in your jacket and you walk around, uh, does that food, clean food, make you clean? No. If you were to eat unclean food, does that make you unclean? And his answer is yes, it absolutely does. All right, let's look at the logic there, what he's saying. The point is that we can through our sin, make things unclean, but holy places like the temple can never make us clean. We need God's grace in order to be clean. Does that make sense? The third oracle concludes with a reassurance, but from this day on, I will bless you. Okay? Now, the fourth oracle. In Haggai's fourth oracle, also dated December 18th, 520 B.C., same day as the third oracle, God addresses the governor, Zerubbabel. God says that he will overthrow the throne of kingdoms and destroy the strength of, of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And not only that, he will restore the house of David by making Zerubbabel like a signet ring in his hand, divine proof that I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, why do you think that he would say that Zerubbabel would be like a signet ring in his hands? What, is that, what does that mean? Zerubbabel would be like a signet ring in his hands. First off, what, what is a signet ring and what does it do? Yeah, who wears the signet ring? The king. And what, what is he doing with it? Yeah, yeah he's kind of, he put a little bit of wax on there and then he pressed that ring into the wax and then you would know that that message came from the king. So if, if uh, you know, a messenger just came to your town and said, hear ye, hear ye, uh, thus does the king, 
you're, we're doing this now, you need some kind of uh, assurance that this is actually a message from the king. And so he would bring the, the, the paper, it would have the signet ring of the king, maybe the cuneiform, or I'm not sure what they wrote on in those days, but he'd press that into the clay, into the wax, and then you would know, okay, this is an authentic thing because only the king has the signet ring on his hand. Now, what does he mean when he says that Zerubbabel will be like a signet ring in God's hand? What does that mean? Right, so, right, so, the, so Zerubbabel would, would be the instrument of divine authority in the, in the land of the people, right? So, again, he's talking about restoring the house of David, which, if you're reading what I'm reading in the life of Solomon with Jeroboam and Rehoboam and the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, it all fell apart. And so God is saying, I'm going to put it back together again through Zerubbabel. All right, let's look at some theological themes from the book. The first is a new temple. The restoration of the temple is important because it indicates God's desire to renew his covenant relationship with his people. Uh, here's a note from the ESV Study Bible that I thought was helpful. They write, a decaying temple signifies a decaying relationship and brings defilement rather than holiness to the people. Does that make sense? So the temple is not just a building. It represents God's covenant relationship with the people. And so if the building itself is in shambles, it represents the state of the people's relationship with God. And so it's very important. Now, we don't have a temple today. It was torn down in uh, 70 AD. The question is, should we rebuild the temple? Why or why not? You know, you'll find some Christians some, someday, some places who say, hey, absolutely, we need to be pumping money in there to get these guys to rebuild the temple. We need to drive the Muslims off the Temple Mount, destroy the Dome of the Ark, and rebuild the temple, and then, I don't know, Jesus will come again, or something good will happen if that happens. Are, are they right? Should, should we, in light of what we read in the book of Haggai and all that emphasis on rebuilding the house of the Lord, should we rebuild the temple? Why? No? No? I'm hearing no? Uh, why not? Why should we not rebuild the temple in Jerusalem? Because our body is the temple? Good. What else? It's been rebuilt. How so? Yep. Yeah, in John chapter 2, uh, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and on three days, I will build it up again. And unless there's any, uh, if there's any confusion or ambiguity there, there, John places in parentheses, what? And the temple that he was referring to is his body. And so, there's no more need for a physical building to be the place where heaven and earth meet. Jesus was the place where heaven and earth meet. The temple, as important as it was, especially in the Old Covenant, was important because it was a pointer to Jesus, who is the true temple, who was 
destroyed. His body was torn down figuratively and in physically torn down and then rebuilt or reconstituted in the resurrection. So it's all pointing forward to him. That's the temple. All right, another theological theme is that God is mighty. The phrase Lord of hosts occurs 14 times in the 38 verses of Haggai. The Lord, Yahweh, controls the whole world. He is the God of Israel as well as the God of the nations. Nothing in the world is out of his control. He is sovereign over all. So who knows what that name, Lord of hosts, means? What does that mean? And is there a famous hymn or song where that, that name appears? Lord of hosts. Yes, Lord Sabaoth, which is the Lord of hosts. What is the host? Like a warrior the angel armies of God. That's actually, I think, one of the better imageries of one of the newer songs, The God of Angel Armies. That's a very good literal translation of Lord of Hosts. The hosts are the, the angelic soldiers of God. So that's something you can note, not only in the book of Haggai, but as you're reading the scriptures, whenever you see that name, the Lord of Hosts, um, Lord Sabaoth, Yahweh Sabaoth, you know the, the author, the divine author, through the human author, is attempting to draw your attention to the strength and the power of God. That God is sovereign, that God is in control. So that's one of the themes. Now, how does God's sovereignty comfort you when you're worried? If God is sovereign, why do you think he allows bad things to happen in the world? So let's take the first one. Is the sovereignty of God comforting to you? And if so, why is it comforting to you? And if not, why is it not comforting to you? What do you think? God knows all things and works all things together for our good. So that God's sovereign, he is not only willing, but able to work all things for our good. Good. So it's good to know that. That's comforting to know. Yep, no chance, no accidents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all, it's all part of God's plan. So there's, no, there's never a day in the world where God is surprised that something happened. And his, his plan is good. And his plan is good, yes. Mm -hmm. Any other thoughts? Why is God's sovereignty a comforting thing? Rewarding and comfort. <laughs> yes? Yes. Yeah, now on the Yes, it takes a lot of the pressure off. Now, um God does call us to will and to work for his good pleasure, and yet we also know that it is God who is at work. And so we can work and obey him and do what God is calling us to do with kind of out without the pressure that the results are up to us. The results are up to God. God's going to do what he's going to do. We plant, we water, but it's ultimately God that makes things grow. And so we can just, we can trust him. And I think it, you know, even when you think about something as, um, 
something is that produces as much anxiety in us as evangelism, for example. You know, sometimes we we worry, oh no, if I talk to this person about the Lord, you know, how are they going to react, or what are they going to say, or am I going to have a convincing argument, or you know, am I going to stumble over my words or say things the wrong way? We don't have to worry about that at all. Just talk to the person about the Lord and. Uh, you may stumble through it, and uh, the person is going to be like, wow, that's amazing. And uh, you may come up with the best presentation ever, and the person's going to just look at you like you're from Mars. It's okay. God is sovereign. He's in control. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's... Yeah, God's ultimate plan is not contingent upon our actions. Good. So, yep. You know, I think that we, the more we trust God's character and we know him, the more at peace we are with his sovereignty. But I mm. think that as part of that, you know, God's sovereignty doesn't mean it's going to be easy or not full of suffering or these things. So I think we can, you know, it comforts us because we know that we can trust him. But it doesn't mean that it couldn't be full of hardship. You mm-hmm. know, and there's that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. Good insight. What about the next question? If God is sovereign, why do you think he allows uh, bad things to happen in the world? That's a question well, I... problem with evil? That's an easy one. <laughs> I get it all the time. People ask me this all the time. Uh, if God is If God is good... Uh, and sovereign, as we have acknowledged, and I think that is true, I know that is true, then why do you think bad things happen in the world? Uh, why do bad things happen to Israel? A lot of bad things happen to them. You know, uh, God offered us paradise in a perfect world, and we resisted that. So we just rest that we don't allow more bad things to happen. Yeah, that's good. It, sometimes the, the problem of evil or the problem of why bad things happen is couched under the assumption that good things should happen to us all the time. Yeah. That our default setting is uh, Eden and paradise, but which it is, except for uh, the fall, rebellion. except for rebellion, except for sin, which I think we underestimate what a catastrophe that that was. Um, that rebellion against God, that rejection of God's plan and God's kingdom threw the whole thing into absolute chaos. And so it's probably more remarkable that God is as merciful and as good and as caring that he makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust alike, uh, that we retain the image of God, however broken and marred it is by sin, and so we have dignity and worth and all of these things. This is all part of um, part of what God does. Kathy, I what I have said was, you know, why is bad things that happen? I think it's kind of a cultural trait because mm. it appeals to the flesh, mm. <clears throat> and also it makes. more 
So just to summarize, in case you couldn't hear, on the one hand, uh, bad things happen in order to drive us to Christ. To, and on the other hand, they show us our own inadequacies. So for people who don't know Christ at all, oftentimes disaster and chaos and a death or something tragic will sort of point you toward eternal things and eternal truths and ultimately to the God of Scripture and the grace and comfort that he gives us through Christ by his Spirit. But on the other hand, as Christians, people who are already walking with God, in a sense, it's a sort of a reminder that we are finite. Uh, it's a reminder that we don't have all the answers. It's a reminder that we do need God in a living, abiding way every moment of every day. We don't sort of meet God and then move beyond God to something else. We are daily abiding in Him. That's part of what it means to be a Christian, is abiding in Christ. Being in Christ, as Paul says, united to Him through faith. Yeah, any other thoughts on that? Deep questions, but yes? I don't know the reference, but the verse that says that man is a lump of gold and God is, or is an impurity, rather, than in order that he can see the reflection of himself. Mm -hmm. and I, that we are refined like fire, refined. Peter says. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, that we are refined by the fires of, of suffering, strengthened, the impurities and, and um, imperfections sort of have a way of burning off of us through suffering. We're refined with love, too, is what you're saying. Mm -hmm. It's an experience. We, we allow our children sometimes to bear the consequences of what they've done in a specific way, not because we don't care, we don't pay attention, but because we love them and know they need to learn. Mm. So it is also, he allows these things because he loves them. Mm. Yes, that's a, yeah, that's a good point, too. He allows these things because because he loves us and we're his kids. And sometimes that's, that's the way we learn. It's unfortunate. We wish we didn't have to learn that way. You know, you wish you didn't have to touch the hot stove that you could just believe that it's hot. But sometimes we do. Yeah, Tom. You got time for a real quick story? Sure, fire away. That's good. Yeah, it's that's a hardship and difficulty and evil as part of this fallen world, and it can be absolutely devastating to us. And yet, we trust in the God who wants to make his dwelling place with us. We trust in the God who has a plan to ultimately reverse the curse of death and to bring about everlasting life new creation, new hope, new life. And so this is the God that we're reading about all throughout the Bible, not just in the book of Haggai, though we certainly are, but on every page of the scripture, we're reading about the God who has a plan 
to reverse the curse of, of sin and death and to bring about uh, righteousness and life and justice and peace, uh, that shalom idea, that wholeness or flourishing idea. We're going to be talking about that in the service today. That's the, that's the plan. You know, I think that um, you have to keep continually reminding yourself that God is sovereign. Mm -hmm. Because there are times where you're going to go through a period of time where there's darkness. And I personally have been there with a wayward son. We thought we would lose him through drugs. And just yes, this Friday, his live-in girlfriend said that he's decided that he thinks it would be a good idea to raise his son in the church. Mm. Mm. I'm sure that's... And we went through 15 years mm. thinking that we were going to get that two in the morning phone call that he was dead. Mm. And so that very word that God is sovereign, mm -hmm. that's all you've got. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a good word. Yeah. That's a good word. Well, let's move on to a couple of other uh, themes here, and we'll wrap it up. Uh, the next one is obedience and blessing, the relationship of obedience and blessing. When God told the people of Israel to build the temple, they obeyed him, and they were blessed. Question, does God always bless obedient people? Does he sometimes bless them? Why or why not? If you just say, hey, listen, I'm going to obey God and I'm going to be very, very obedient, is that sort of a, a ticket that you hand to God in exchange for a blessed life? That's kind of a work-oriented thing in itself. And there's no way you're going to be obedient enough. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's right. It, first off, it presumes that you can be obedient enough uh, on the one hand, which is a rather dubious uh, assumption. Uh, second, it sort of tr it turns our relationship with God into a transactional relationship. Yes. of an obedient life is that there are often blessings. You know, obviously through the life of Christ, he was ultimately obedient and was, you know, killed on the cross. So, you know, is that a blessing? Well, I mean, for us, yes. <laughs> for him, you know, is his sacrifice. So I think that it's, as you say, it's not transactional, but I do think that the life of obedience brings blessing because God built it in to the Sometimes it's hardship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, you know, that ultimately when God's trying to bring us closer mm -hmm. to Himself, make us more like Jesus, yeah. how does it work the world to define the blessing that I get? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we think about the paradox of um, the scripture says, for the joy that was set before Him, Jesus endured the cross. We don't think about that as joyful at all. We think, oh my goodness, that's. That's the opposite of blessing. And yet, not only was the cross a blessing for us, I think if you take the scripture at its plain meaning, it was a blessing for Christ as well. 
Now, that doesn't mean it was pleasurable for him. Uh, it was agonizing for him. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said, you know, I thirst. You know, there, there was all sorts of pain involved with it. And yet, it was a joy and a blessing for him. Philippians 2, give me the quote or the verse. He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, wherefore also God has highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, so mm -hmm. Good. Yeah, Philippians 2. Good. All right, well, let's go another theme. Almost done here. Um, restoration of David's house. The book concludes with God's promise to restore the house of David through Zerubbabel. The question is, did Zerubbabel fulfill the promises made to David's son? Did Zerubbabel rule forever? Did he conquer all the hostile nations of the world? Did he usher in a new era of shalom? And if not, who did? Right? So it is the, the hope of the people, our hope is not Zerubbabel. Uh, we are not Zerubbabelians. <laughs> we are Christians because Zerubbabel uh, was not the ultimate fulfillment of this promise, the covenant that God had made with David, that he would have a son who would sit on the throne of Israel forever of his kingdom. There would be no end. That's fulfilled not in Zerubbabel, but in Jesus. And so... As great as this restoration is at the end of the book of Haggai, we have to telescope it to say this is not ultimately what it's about. This is a, a beginning of the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment, which comes to us in Christ. That leads us to the last part of this, which is looking forward to Jesus. Uh, the people rebuilt the temple, but the visible presence of God, that cloud of fire, that Shekinah glory, never returned. Did the visible presence of God ever return to the temple? If so, when did God make himself visible in the temple again? And a little hint here, what does John 1.14 say about Jesus? He tabernacled among us. So, Again, there's no indication that this new temple, which they rebuilt after the exile, ever contained the glory of God again. Once, uh, once that departed with the destruction of Solomon's temple, it never returned. But it did return in the person of Jesus Christ, who became one of us in the incarnation, who tabernacled among us, who was the true and living temple, the house of God who lived among us. So that's the fulfillment of the glory returning to the temple. In the book of Acts, tongues of fire came down on the heads of the disciples. Why do you think that happened? What does that tell us about our relationship to God and the temple? Are you following me? So... Uh, in the original temple, the Solomon's temple, the glory of God descends like this glowing cloud of fire. It leaves once the temple is destroyed, 
it never returns until Jesus returns. And then in the book of Acts, this strange thing happens. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The disciples are all together in an upper room. They're praying, and then tongues of fire descend on their heads. Why? Right, because Jesus is the true temple, and we become temples of the living God through him. If you are united to him in a death like his, you will be united to him in a resurrection like his. And so the visible presence of God, the fire from heaven, descends on the disciples in the new covenant as they're gathered together in the upper room. Which is why the Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the living God? Now, that's not just saying, hey, uh, you know, ease back on the McDonald's and uh, don't drink too much and don't smoke and all that. Yeah, I mean, okay, it means that a little bit. But what it's saying is something much more profound. Our bodies are temples of the living God as we're united to Jesus. We have access to God puts his name upon us. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, good point. That, that baptism and kind of impressing the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a, a further indication of, of that union with Christ. Good. All right, um, almost done. In Haggai, we're told the wealth of the nations would flow to Israel. Did that ever happen? Did it ever happen? Wealth of the nations flowed to Israel. Mm -hmm. It will happen at the end. Did it ever happen before that? What did they bring? Where did the wise men, come, the magi, magi, magicians, wise men, where did those guys come from? The East. Uh, Jacksonville? Uh, the East. The East. They came from the East. And what did they bring? Gold, frankincense, myrrh. Again, this is not the final fulfillment. The final fulfillment is in the book of Revelation. But there's a prefiguring of the wealth of the nations coming to the true temple, Jesus Christ. You see? So the book of Haggai is being fulfilled in the incarnation, in the Christmas story, when the wise men come to see Jesus. All right, in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10... We're told that we are living stones in the new temple. What do you think that means? Living stones in the new temple. We're talking all about building God's house. And then Peter says, hey, you guys are living stones in a new temple. What does that mean? Jesus is the cornerstone of the temple. Good. Yes, that Jesus came as the cornerstone of the temple in order to build all of us 
as living stones into the new temple. And so we are part of the new house of God. And we sing that song uh, based on Psalm 23, house of God forever. We are the house of God forever as the church. We are the temple of the living God. Uh, All of us together, living stones, the new temple. All right, in Hebrews 12, we are told that we will receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Haggai, like the writer of Hebrews, connects the temple and the kingdom. How do those two themes come together in the person of Jesus Christ? Temple and kingdom. What do you think? Yes, he's, our, he's the king of kings. He's our great high priest. Good. Jesus is a prophet, priest, and king. So those threefold offices point to those two things coming together. Yeah, so the, it's all connected in the, the person of, of Jesus. He is the great king. He is the true temple. Um, just as those two things came together temporarily in the life of Solomon, that great scene where Solomon is dedicating the temple, Jesus is the true son of David, not Solomon, though Solomon was a son of David. Jesus is the son of David, And he is building the true temple, which is, first of all, his body, but then, second of all, his church. We are living stones in the new temple. And so that's what Jesus came to do, to bring those two themes of uh, kingdom and temple and presence and rule all together in his person. Well, that's a lot in the book of Haggai. Any closing questions here? And we'll wrap it up. we got to close up in a minute or two, so not too many. All right, y'all, why don't you come back next week, and we'll hit the next one. And uh, in the meantime, we'll go to worship. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your goodness and grace to us. Lord, we thank you that we are living stones in the new temple. We thank you, Jesus, for laying down your life for us to bring about a kingdom that can never be shaken. Thank you for the book of Haggai and what it teaches about your house. Lord, we confess that we often are much more preoccupied with building our own kingdoms and our own houses and neglecting your house and your kingdom. Oh, Lord, would you fill us with the fire of your spirit that we might come alive to the glories of your plan. You are sovereign and you are good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Amen.